0: Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Hello, I'm Leah Labresco-Sargent. I'm the author of Building the Benedict Option, a book about creating thicker Christian community. And I also run Other Feminisms, a substack focused on building a way to advocate for women as women in a world that values autonomy over dependence. I'm here with Abigail Favale, who's the Dean of the College of Humanities and a professor of English at George Fox university. Her first book, which I loved into the deep is a chronicle of her conversion to Catholicism. And she's also in her inexplicable spare time, a short story writer, which explains why her books are such a pleasure to read. She handles deep topics lyrically and memorably. And her new book, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory, is an excellent read for tumultuous times, and you can find it at Ignatius.com. Abigail, I really want to start with what feels like one of the central questions of how do we talk about gender? Why do we talk about gender? Because I think for a lot of people, discussion of gender as important feels like it's all about no's. Girls Mm -hmm. don't play with trucks. They don't roughhouse. Boys don't weep when they find something that's sublime. And nowadays there's a different restrictive take. You know, boys don't play with dolls. And if you like dolls, isn't it possible you're not a boy? So where does the sense of gender as kind of putting up walls for closing options come? And where do you see our sexed bodies
1: as a yes to something? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the way you've put that. Um, you're you're exactly right that in our we're in this strange cultural moment where it seems like very, for lack of a better word, conservative understandings of gender and progressive understandings of gender are very much based on policing stereotypes and defining men and women through conformity to stereotypes and through tasks, through preferences, through all of these things that aren't fundamentally about embodiment. And so there seems to be this emphasis on doing rather than being. And where that comes from, I think, is a really interesting question. I'm not completely sure, but it seems to be um, a feature of um, America in a way, you know. Um, and also, I wonder sometimes if there's an influence in the the Protestant history of America um, on this kind of Protestant work ethic sort of idea where where there's so much of an emphasis on what you do rather than simply who you are. Um, And I think shifting the conversation of gender to being rather than doing is a way of making a lot more room for individual unique attributes and personalities while also affirming um, the reality of maleness and femaleness. So it's, it's much more freeing, right? If you say, well, a boy is a, is a male human being who's not yet fully grown and he might have a quite a wide range of things that he's interested in. And he's also the full, the full spectrum of human emotionality and virtue is open to him. Jacket like is open to a little girl. Um, and then there's there's so much more of an opportunity to be attentive to the uniqueness of the individual, um, rather than having these cookie cutter ideas and seeing how individual fit into those or fit in those.
0: I, I like that framing because you know it's often meant a lot to me also um, when I was growing up, I certainly did some things where I was the only girl in the room, whether that was going on the state mathletes math trip or being in the machine shop with little shavings of copper in my hair as I was building mm-hmm. a steam engine. And oh, in some ways, this is the answer to, you know, is this a womanly thing to do? And the answer is yes, here I am, a woman mm-hmm. doing it. But mm-hmm. how is this different than just a framing of choice feminism where anything a woman chooses becomes a womanly thing to do um, and everything is good because I, a woman, am choosing to do
1: it? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, well, I guess I do agree. So this is this is how John Paul II in his writing talks about masculinity and femininity. So he he never talks about... Women being masculine, um, because masculinity is sex lived out in the world. It's the activity of a male human being in the world, and same with um, femininity. And so there is a sense in which what makes something masculine or feminine, it's the it's the body, the embodiment of the person that adds that inflection, um, rather than thinking of these abstract traits of masculinity and femininity. They're just kind of out in the world, and you sort of enter into them by how much you mimic stereotypes. Um, but that said, I do think so there are there are tip there are typical trends. If you look at sex differences in terms of, you know, personality and preferences and choices, you'll see kind of a bimodal graph, right? Where, the typical male might be sort of here and the typical female might be sort of here. So I think there's definitely a conversation to be had about um, what, what kinds of differences there are on the aggregate, generally speaking. Right. So then it's true. You might have a woman whose individual femininity resembles typical masculinity in the world. That's true, but that doesn't then make her masculine. Right. But that's, That's where I think the mistake is. Um, So I think we can talk about certain expressions or instantiations of femininity resembling certain um, male traits. But we can't just then say, oh, therefore, that means this woman is actually masculine rather than feminine, because then we're back to that kind of those polarized um, caricatures.
0: I think one thing that interests both of us is that there's a lot of pressure in our society for women essentially not to be women. Uh, There's a Mm -hmm. quote that you have here that puts it very cleanly from your book. Too often, freedom for women is cast as freedom from femaleness. Mm -hmm. And a little later on, you say, under this new banner of autonomy, female embodiment becomes a threat. Women's bodies are too porous, too open to the selfhood of another. Pregnancy and maternity belie the modern ideal of the autonomous self. So I wonder if you could expand a little on, you know, how, how do we get sold this, right? Mm-hmm. How is it that we can frame women's empowerment as removing more and more of what makes us distinctively women and calling that accomplishment?
1: Yeah. Well, I think part of it is that if you just look at liberalism as a whole, and by that I mean the political philosophy, not necessarily American liberals. Um, but I think the subject of liberalism is the autonomous self, right? The individual who has certain rights and that individual is pretty much implicitly non-sexed, which means not female, right? So I think even in the first waves of feminism that were very much entrenched in that tradition, the the concept of the individual who's being defended um, is is, I think, still kind of, there's an emphasis on autonomy from the beginning, I think, because of liberalism. However, in first wave feminism, they, they weren't worried so much about um, femaleness, right? Like they didn't, they didn't want to be free from motherhood. (laughs) They didn't want to be free from fertility. So I think that shift really came about because of the, the success of Margaret Sanger's campaign um, to make birth control socially acceptable. And that kind of happened between the first and second waves. And so by the time in the seventies and the second wave feminism really hit. Uh, By that time, it was part of the cultural consciousness that the problem is both societal, there's this patriarchy that we have to deal with, but then also the problem is actually women's bodies themselves. And so the solution um, to what liberation looks like is basically giving women access to traits of male physiology. So being free from their fertility, free from the risk of pregnancy. And then if they get pregnant, they can have access to abortion. So they can kind of walk away from a pregnancy without having to um, kind of deal with the consequences. Right. So I think once once the feminist movement really embraced that as the key to women's freedom, then you that's when this irony in feminism became entrenched because implicitly the the value and the ideal affirmed by that kind of feminism looks like maleness rather than femaleness. I feel like
0: there are two ways I see this ideal of autonomy urged on women and one is, you know, a complete denial of the goodness of being a woman, which is kind of saying to be a woman is intrinsically to be vulnerable to others, most specifically through fertility, but in other ways as well. And that's terrible. That's enslavement. You know, you should never Have someone else be able to make a demand on you, you can't walk away from. And that's kind of a a rallying cry then to sever ourselves from those ties. And then I see kind of a more gentle, regretful embrace of autonomy that just says, look, you know, I'm sorry, there's just no room to be a woman here. You know, so like it or not, you won't be able to hold a job, you won't be able to exist on an equal footing. And whether that's right or wrong, I want to help women by helping them navigate this unjust system. It's almost the Mm -hmm. same way that kind of supporting other women might mean advice about how to navigate a handsy manager because you have no hope the manager will ever be fired. Mm -hmm. How how do we respond to this unjust demand when it's so baked into our society so it can feel like the only help available is figuring out how to respond to it, not how to deny it? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question because we do, I mean, we do live in a society that that has not sufficiently accepted or adapted to the reality of femaleness. And I think actually one of the reasons is because the approach our society takes to femaleness is primarily access to contraception and abortion, right? So we, for example, in the United States don't have paid maternity leave right? Which to me just boggles my mind. I think there, last I checked, I haven't maybe Googled this in the last year, but last I checked, there were four countries in the entire world that don't provide paid maternity leave. And the U.S. is one of them. Um, And also the U.S. has the most permissive or extreme um, access to abortion, far more than a lot of most European countries, et cetera. So to me, that that is is clear evidence, I think, that women, especially in in America, have to kind of move through this culture that doesn't really know what to do um, with the fact that we have babies, you know? And I do think things are changing. Um, in fact, actually, COVID, weirdly, in the way that it's been disruptive to the workforce in opening up new ways of working, like hybrid working situations, more flexibility, I think. Those sorts of situations will eventually um, benefit women because it will it will open up a little bit more room um, for adapting and and balancing um, a career and also motherhood. But those those changes are kind of slow in coming. Um, So it's yeah, it's tricky.
0: Now, I think this demand to be autonomous is, first of all, an unmeetable demand since no one actually is autonomous. It's a question of yes. how well you <laughs> can disguise your own need and how well you can hide the need that other people have of you. I mean, we've seen this even you know, during the pandemic, that sense of, okay, well, we understand you're at home with your children, but please be at home with them invisibly. You know How can you make a four-year-old unperceptible?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah.
0: part of our job is covering up. The demands other people have on us. Mm-hmm. And that always falls more heavily on women because we're intrinsically tied to others. That, mm-hmm. that tie to children is a physical tie for women in a way it isn't for men. Yeah. But where do you see that demand for autonomy placing the biggest burden or hurting men the most? Because of mm-hmm. course, men are taken as the model of the autonomous individual, but they secretly aren't either. So yes. where is this hurting men?
1: Oh, that's such a good point, right? Because even even though I make the argument that this ideal of autonomy is is, uh, is kind of adapted from maleness, it's also not true that men are autonomous, right? Because anyone who's born in the world, I mean, we receive our very existence as a gift. We're dependent quite literally just on the air we breathe and being able to participate in the economy and get food on the table, right? We're very dependent creatures. And so again, even this ideal of autonomy, um, it, it's not, it's not quite true, even when we're talking about, about men, but I think it's just more obvious that women, women more, more obviously display the, the kind of interdependent nature of human beings. Uh, so what, I mean, I think there are so many ways I could go with this, but one thought that initially came to mind, I think is our sexual, our sexual culture and the the kind of expectation that sex is should be this kind of impersonal temporary fleeting encounter that is primarily about self pleasure through you know kind of using the body for an, of another person for self pleasure but there's there's not really an investment long term in the other person's well-being um i think certainly that kind of that kind of transient sexual culture damages women but I also think it's bad for men. I do think it's bad for men. I think it's it's dehumanizing, um, and it it kind of, I guess it, in a, in a way, it doesn't call men to their true dignity. You know, it, I think it kind of erases their their dignity. Um, and one other thing I would say is that consistently, when it comes to things like suicide rates, um, men, middle aged men, tend to be the highest um group in terms of suicide rates and so that's something that that troubles me and that I think about and that maybe there's i mean that clearly shows that there's some kind of social burden that's being placed on men and that their needs aren't being met in a certain way in terms of maybe connection and emotion because there's so much emphasis again on doing right you're just supposed to do 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 work 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 succeed 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 but you know when you're sick your job's not going to like take care of you or comfort you when you're feeling despair or you're depressed, right? No, those are all going to be relationships. And so I think perhaps there's there's something about our culture that um, doesn't value those kind of social bonds and connections and relationships enough, and that um, men feel that burden maybe more acutely because there's also these social expectation that men shouldn't need those kinds of things.
0: I think there's a real devaluation of fatherhood also, mm-hmm. where you know in discussions of paid leave it's a necessity for women it's a purely physical necessity even if we didn't care about mothers feelings about their children there's time that just has to happen to recover to feed your baby but that leaves men often treated as though their paternity leave is kind of incidental or mm. doesn't matter to them or matters just because their wives need help which is true uh certainly but, you know, My husband is watching our three-month-old right now so that we can have this conversation. And he's not doing it just to do me a favor, but because he loves our baby. Yeah. And I think we don't talk as much about men wanting to be fathers and mm. wanting that time, wanting those burdens, wanting you know, the daycare to call them, sometimes wanting to take care of a child who is sick because they love being fathers mm. and not as a thing they're pressed to or are doing because the mother is working, but because they are fathers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my husband has been a stay-at-home dad since we started having kids almost a decade ago. And watching his fatherhood is one of the most kind of beautiful things about his masculinity. Like it's just, there are sometimes I'm just in awe of him, you know, like, I don't know, the other day we were at the park and he had our one-year-old kind of like in one arm and the dog on a leash and another, and he's just kind of walking like this lumberjack through, through the park. And our ki- other kids are like running around. And I was just like, wow, I, I am so grateful that our kids have such a close bond with their father, um, with both of their parents. But the, the, his accessibility to them has given them a kind of intimacy with him that I don't often see. And I think that is so beautiful, but it's definitely been hard for him, especially because you know, there, there are a lot of resources for stay at home moms. There's lots of socialization groups. There's, um, there are the mommy wars, but it's just a much more socially acceptable kind of setup. Whereas stay at home dads are, you know, there's, it's very alienating, I think, and very, it can be very isolating. And so he has struggled with that. Um, And I, I think it's, in some ways, it's harder to be a stay at home dad because of that. And, it's so countercultural, right? Because you have a man who's explicitly not staking his value in a kind of professional career and that just doesn't really compute in our culture, right? Like oh, he must be you know, something must be wrong with him or something. but um, but it's been it's been very beautiful for me to watch and see how much my children have benefited from having him so present in their lives.
0: And I think in my own life, one thing I notice I get to enjoy as a woman that's harder for men is that people don't find it suspicious that I like children. Mm. Um, That I can be at a park reading and then chat up a mom whose kids are there without the corroborating evidence of my kids being there. (laughs) And people think that it's natural, that I might delight in Mm. children or chat with children. I think for men, that's not true. Mm. And I try and be really attentive to some of my male friends who are single when they come visit us to ask them, do you want to hold the baby? Because I don't think people offer all the Mm. time and they don't assume that's a real desire that men have or if they do that it's a a kind of suspicious desire there must be something unpleasant at the heart of it.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I think I think your book kind of touches on the sociological questions but also theological questions and I want to pivot there for a second because you talk in depth about the change in men and women's relationship after the fall hmm. and the way both sexes bear the consequences of this rupture and change in our relationship with God, but they bear those consequences differently. Hmm. And I think that's really hard for people to engage with because our culture assumes that unequal or unequivalent is inherently unjust. So where do you see good in asymmetry even in the Hmm. consequences of the fall?
1: Mm, That's good. Well, we have, I mean, what's interesting is that asymmetry exists before the fall. That's one thing I would say. so in in that beautiful encounter in Genesis two, where a human being speaks for the first time in scripture, it's an, it's an acclamation of sexual difference. And so, you know, it's when um, the male human being says, "At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh." So in that, there's this expression of sameness, right? She is like him more than any other creature God has made. And yet, when he names her, he names her woman. He names himself man. So there's also this difference. So from the beginning, even even in our original goodness, there's both sameness and difference that's, that's held in tension, right? And I think theories of gender tend to lose that tension. Most theories of gender tend to lose that tension and pull either toward sameness, wanting to say men and women are basically interchangeable. And anytime we shouldn't talk about sex differences because those are kind of inherently sexist, or the opposite side, seeing men and women is so different, like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and then there tends to be this kind of implicit hierarchy. So I would say that asymmetry exists before the fall. Now, after the fall, I do think that's when the asymmetry gets gets co-opted by dynamics of domination and control in a way that we don't see before the fall. So that's the first time we get a sense of, of hierarchy or power disparity between uh, the man and the woman. In the when when God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Right. So, Edith Stein um, she talks about the sexes in terms of the original order, the fallen order, and then the redemptive order. So there's this possibility through the grace of Christ working in us that we can move from those kind of fallen dynamics of domination, which I think historically and often tend to be men dominating women. But then I also think as John Paul II has said, women can, women can mimic those dynamics of domination and reverse them. Right. So when he says we need a new, new feminism that doesn't simply replicate these dynamics of male domination, I think he's exactly right. So that, that fall in dynamic is not always one-sided, but of course it's simply true that, you know, men are physically stronger and have, um, you know, a lot more testosterone, right? So there's just like a lot, a lot of kind of stuff going on there, which could, could lend itself to male domination over women. Um, But I, but I think it can also, it can also happen the other way for sure. But the point is that's, that's not the ideal. And what frustrates me sometimes in, in, in Christian circles, when I see, when I see, People lose the, those distinctions between the original order, fallen order, and redemptive order, and just collapse them all into this ideal. Like, oh, well, it's it's actually the ideal that a man should rule over a woman rather than realizing, oh, my gosh, no, this is clearly a consequence of sin. And through grace in our lives, we should be trying to correct that. We should be trying to reorder that while also realizing that it's going to be an ever-present danger in in this age, in the fallen world. I
0: like um, when you kind of touch on how do you approach this as a married woman, you know, not just as an author, as someone who has to be attentive to these dynamics day in and day out. You share your marital motto from Homer's Odyssey in the mm-hmm. book, uh, which is, no finer, greater gift in the world than that when man and woman possess their home, two minds, two hearts that work as one despair to their enemies joy to all their friends their own best claim to glory and I wanted to ask you on a practical level how do you and your husband make sure that this stays at the heart of your marriage because Mm -hmm. it's easy to get swept away from our relationship with God from our relationship with each other by the bustle and demands of everyday life how do you make sure that this is what you stay true to you
1: Mm -hmm. that's great I mean it's it's a it's a work in progress all the time, right? Um, and it's true. Right now, you know, we have four kids nine, seven, four, and almost two. So our life is just a circus constantly. You know, it's just pretty much chaos. Um, but we make sure that we spend time together. I think we both also make sure that we regularly tell each other how much we see and appreciate how hard the other person is working, um, and there isn't this like obsession about everything being equal you know like well i did this chore and this chore so you need to do this chore and this chore it's just this kind of seamless collaboration right um we're we're both constantly doing domestic labor and you know he also works part time and so there are times when when i'm like we do this dance you know i'm home with the kids so he can go out and grade papers um or you know, he's with the kids so I can be at work when I need to be. So it's like this, it's this constant dance, but there isn't this expectation that either I should be doing the bulk of the childcare, domestic labor, or that everything should be exactly 50-50, right? So it's, it's much more fluid than that. And it's, it's freeing actually, because we're able to figure out the right setup according to our situation and our you know unique personalities and how those combine and that's something I think that's freeing in the Catholic understanding of marriage that you there isn't just this one model you have to follow like both for in marriage like the the vocation should be centered on the home for the married couple both the husband and the wife but how that actually looks in terms of who works and when and whose career blah 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 I think all of that is so contingent upon all these different circumstances and it's it's really beautiful that the church gives the couple the ability to discern how they live out their vocation.
0: I like the way you're framing that because it's not a matter of having a chore chart that everyone's sticking to and checking up on each other on, but a constant conversation that in some way reminds me of some of the good fruit that can come from NFP, where yeah. it isn't just, you know, well, we're doing this or doing that. We're being attentive to the woman's body and to fertility and, in some ways, it's a constant question. What will we do next? Uh, mm-hmm. What will happen next? You know, My husband and I have those conversations too. Uh, this morning it was, all right, well, there's this half hour I'm talking to Abigail, <laughs> so I need your help there. Mm-hmm. And will you take over this pasta bake to our friends who had a baby? It's It's always conversation. It's not mm-hmm. so much we know each of our jobs and we stick to them because there's right. too much to do to do it
1: that cleanly. Exactly. Right. And plus, you know, it's just, you got to be, you got to be responsive all the time when you've got little kids, like you can't plan out how everything's going to go.
0: Uh, we, we've got a two-year-old and a baby. So there's a lot of, well, will you catch the toddler before she falls on the yes, beach? You know, it, yeah. constant demands. Yeah. Uh, now I want to ask kind of looking back to younger kids, your book is a sophisticated book. So how should a parent approach the book if they want to both read your book themselves, but they want to give some of it to their children, whether directly by recommending passages or letting it inform those conversations?
1: That's a great question. I think I do, I do try to write in an accessible enough way, you know, not in this kind of academic way um, that I would say that any, you know, I would say it's Appropriate for a teenager to read. But in terms of smaller children, I think, I don't know, I guess one thing I would just say for parents to do is affirm your child's embodiment. This is something that I tell my kids a lot, like, oh, you have, you know, you have such a wonderful body, you know? And um, and it's funny. I actually, one of my kids, one of my, one of my sons is is pretty gender non-conforming in terms of his playing preferences, you know, and I let him play with whatever toys he wants to um, and let him kind of explore that. But I'm also very affirming of him as a boy, you know, like you're such a wonderful boy. And um, so there's this, again, like I try to give my kids freedom, a lot of freedom and how they live out their sex while also really affirming the goodness of their sex and the goodness of their body And anytime they ask questions about boys and girls, you know, I always kind of bring it back to the body rather than like, well, girls like pink, boys like blue. You know, I just don't go there.
0: Yeah, you know, I know that when I was a little girl, my mom was fielding those kinds of, oh, what a pretty girl, where that's the only thing you hear. And we are really attentive to what a big, strong Beatrice you are.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you. Oh, Go ahead. <laughs> I was just saying I have one daughter and I, she is so funny and so smart. And I just always tell her like, wow, you're so creative. You're such a good artist, but I do tell her she's beautiful too. You know, I want her to hear like the whole picture because, um, so I want her to feel affirmed in her physicality and also more beyond that. Right. Because she's so much more than, than just that.
0: Yeah. And I feel like I, I overlearned that, caution of just that beauty might always be a way of putting someone down um so and now for me it's it's easy to tell my daughter she's strong and I have to be a little attentive to it. it's not bad to tell her she's pretty mm-hmm. um yeah. I want to I want to close with one last question because I think I think there's one thing in your marital motto that is not actually Christian, Abigail. Mm-hmm. Ooh, uh, do it. Good. Despair to their enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, I, don't, I don't think we're allowed to actually work for that. I don't think you actually do. And I don't think this is a book exhorting your enemies to despair. No. But where do you see the biggest opportunities for hope uh, for the people you might think of as your enemies, not from this you know, perspective of eternity, but from the perspective of struggles right now? Where mm-hmm. is the invitation to hope that you want for them?
1: Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, that's a very Homeric kind of part of the, you know, the Greek like enemies. And I don't, I mean, I don't like to think, I don't actively like to think about people as my enemies. Um, but it's certainly true. Like when you, when you're something of a public figure and you write about a controversial topic, you do get detractors. Um, and when that's, when those kind of critiques come, if it's, if it's really in a spirit of bad faith or ill will, you know, I try just to kind of not not really engage and ignore it, but I'm very interested in engaging with with people who disagree with me, um, and hearing people's experiences who disagree with me, um, and even, I mean, one thing that I'm constantly praying that God will show me where I'm wrong. Right. So i I, I think I think because in my past I've been an ideologue. I want to make sure that I'm very guarded against that possibility now. And that I'm always being attentive to the truth, but also leading with compassion and being willing to adapt and change my ideas with new information and and to always be responsive to the will of God. Um, Because I don't want this book to be a divisive book. I don't want this book to just be a rallying the troops kind of book I, in my work, I like to build bridges. Um, sometimes that means I just make everyone unhappy because I I try to kind of push, you know, more traditional conservatives on some things. And I also, you know, don't go as far as progressives want me to go. So sometimes that just means I make everyone unhappy, but I'm also hopeful that there's a lot of other people who are in the middle like me, and they're not quite sure how to navigate some of these things. Um, but when I when I think about people who are caught up in the gender paradigm that I write about in the book, I don't think of them as my enemies. I think of people who have all kinds of different situations and all kinds of different wounds and pain and gifts, and they're caught up in a framework that's ultimately not going to be fulfilling and that's not going to ultimately give them what they want. And I think that's bad. Like I think the framework is bad. I think it's harming people. I think it's really harming people, but those people are not bad. Those people are not my enemies and I have very deep kind of love for, for them. And, you know, I, I hope at least that that my book will reach some of them.
0: I think that's beautiful. What really stands out to me in the conversations I have on other feminisms with women and men who kind of span the gamut politically is that a lot is motivated by the sense of, We just will never have space for women as women. And we have to think about what compromises we're going to have to make because space for women as women, space for women as porous, space for women as vulnerable is just not on the table. And a lot of the challenge is convincing people, you know, it has to be and it could be. Yeah, I think your book does a good job laying out a sense that something better and bigger is possible. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me and for your work on this book, which is The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. I hope folks check it out at Ignatius.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at otherfeminisms.substack.com.
1: Thank you so much, Leah. It's always wonderful to speak with you.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at Ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone
1: at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.